well-regulated militia be necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Buried Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I'm so glad you're with me on the program today. Uh, so I am uh, sitting down to record today's show before Joe Biden makes his announcement on uh, new executive actions out in uh, California. But we've gotten a little preview of the uh, rough outlines of these executive actions. I have to say more than anything, I think this is uh, providing uh, Biden an opportunity to speechify uh, about the supposed need for Congress to do even more on uh, gun control. Although I, I'm, a, I'm a little concerned about the potential for mischief uh, with uh, the Biden administration trying to expand or, or clarify uh, who is in the business of selling firearms. Again, we don't have any specifics as I sit down to record this, but we'll be talking more about that on uh, Wednesday's Cam and Company. Today, however, we're going to be talking about the uh, continued freak out on the left to the Bruin decision. Uh, the latest, the New York Times, with a, a big story today, in the gun law fights of 2023, a need for experts on the weapons of 1791. A Supreme Court decision has forced courts to consider what gun restrictions existed two centuries ago, sending demands soaring for historians. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, the uh, New York Times chooses to focus on the uh, anti gun historians who say that oh, the Second Amendment never really protected an individual right. Gun ownership never all that common. All kinds of regulations on the books back then. And of course, all kinds of regulations are allowed now. <laughs> that is who the Supreme Court chose to devote most of its time and attention to, including one Saul Cornell, they say, has uh, uh, in high demand post-Bruin. In the months since a landmark Supreme Court decision, of any of these standards for determining the constitutionality of gun laws, Dr. Cornell's been booked solid an authority on the history and laws around American weapons. He has served as an expert witness in at least 15 federal cases on gun control laws, which is roughly 14 more requests than he used to get in a busy year. Yeah. And uh, as the Times notes, Cornell's demand, <clears throat> mostly among the uh, Democrat attorney generals, right, who are defending gun control laws. And he's not alone. The uh, Times points out a couple of other uh, heavy hitters in the uh, anti-2A movement. Jennifer Tucker directs the Center for the Study of Guns and Society at Wesleyan University, says attorneys have reached out to seek experts on topics as disparate as weapons restrictions on stagecoaches and other contested history around an 18th century attempt at an extended capacity firearm, which would supposedly fire round bullets at Christians and square ones at heathens, known as the puckle gun. Uh... Yeah, you know, I, I got to tell you, I hadn't heard that about the uh, puckle gun before, but uh, okay, whatever. Anyway, uh, in addition to uh, Jennifer Tucker, there's also a Robert Spitzer, a retired political science professor at uh, State University of New York, Cortland, who has written a half dozen books on the history of gun rights as, uh, or the lack thereof, has consulted on at least 10 gun law cases. Uh, he says, uh, quote, the typical image of every adult white male owning a gun, using it to defend hearth and home, the Wild West being tamed by the Colt of the Winchester. Basically, none of that stuff is true. Adding that some of the first laws in colonial America were gun control laws. Ah, uh, but the question is, were they longstanding? Were they on the books for a period of a couple of years? Do they fit within, again, the tradition of the right to keep and bear arms as was understood in 1791? Uh, not let's say, in uh, 1609 or 1620, right? 170 years before the ratification of the Second Amendment. 
Uh, and this is something that the New York Times, it, you know, it's interesting. It highlights a lot of the uh, anti-gun historians and a couple of the pro-gun historians as well, like Ashley Oblinsky, uh, formerly of the uh, uh, Buffalo Bill uh, uh, Museum of the West, uh, and now with the uh, new law center that's been set up at the University of uh, Wyoming. But for the most part, uh, this time story is predicated on the idea that the Supreme Court has set forth this crazy standard. Uh, that now depends on uh, historians coming in and uh, combing through the record. Uh, and, of course, they say this is an impossible test, right? Um, I disagree, quite frankly. Uh, it is true that the Bruin decision uh, is a, you know, I won't even say it's true that it declared a new test because it didn't. What the Bruin decision said is that the two-step test that was being used in uh, by, by lower courts uh, after the Heller decision, after McDonald, was the wrong test for the courts to be using all along. Uh, Justice Thomas made it clear that this two-step inquiry is one step too many, right? Once you figure it out that, okay, yes, Second Amendment rights are implicated, under the uh, test that the lower courts were using pre-Bruin, a lot of these courts would say, okay, so yes, the Second Amendment is, is implicated here. Now the question becomes whether or not that that implication is permitted because the state has a good enough reason to intrude on your right to keep and bear arms. And Justice Thomas said, no, 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 no. That's not the right inquiry. The inquiry is, are Second Amendment rights being implicated? And if the answer is yes, then the question becomes, well, does the law in question fit within the text, history, and tradition of the Second Amendment? There is no interest balancing here trying to balance the public safety interests of the state uh, against the individual right to keep and bear arms. When that entrance balancing test is applied by lower courts, what we've seen in the Ninth Circuit, for example, more than 50 times they have upheld a gun control law, even though they've said, yes, 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 people's Second Amendment rights are being abridged here by these laws, but it's okay. It's forgivable. It's permissible. Because the state says it really needs these laws to protect public safety. And Justice Thomas said that's not permitted. You know, we've seen this same argument still being made by the Biden administration, post-Bruin. We've had federal courts say that uh, under the Biden's theory of who can be a prohibited person, there is no controlling authority, right? That something uh, as, as minor as jaywalking or a speeding ticket, or failing to come to a complete stop at a stop sign could render you non-law-abiding in the eyes of the government, and therefore you lose your Second Amendment rights. Um, now, again, that argument hasn't fared particularly well with the courts post-Bruin, but anti-gun activists are still bitterly clinging to this interest-balancing test, right, where they can try to uh, say that the claims, the, the public safety concerns of the state outweigh your concerns over personal safety and your right to protect yourself with a firearm. Now, as much of a spin as the New York Times tries to put on this, right, like, oh, these anti-gun historians are going to come in and save the day, um, they kind of conclude on a sober note, at least if you're a gun control activist. They write, uh, how the law will ultimately view history remains to be seen. On Thursday, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit in Atlanta cited the 19th century or cited 19th century laws to uphold a Florida age limit on gun purchases, rejecting a challenge by the National Rifle Association. 
But last month, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit in New Orleans struck down a Texas prohibition on guns for people who have domestic violence, restraining orders against them. Adam Winkler, a University of California. By the way, uh, the, 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 the two things are not entirely related, right? I have to disagree with the 11th Circuit's decision. I think they were far too reliant on 19th century laws, uh, post-1868 laws, post-14th Amendment ratification laws than they were on 1791 era laws. But having said that, these are still two very different issues. Uh, gun bans for those under the age of 21, gun bans for those who have been uh, subjected to a domestic violence restraining order but have not been convicted of a crime. We do know, according to Bruin, that there were, you know, things like surety laws in place. There were uh, prohibitions on dangerous people uh, carrying firearms. But the question before the courts now is whether or not our current laws are too broadly structured. Um, and in one case, a uh, case dealing with a domestic violence restraining order. Um, this was not the Fifth Circuit's decision. This was the U.S. District Court's decision. But they pointed out that, look, you can read Bruin strictly. You can look at Bruin and try to find room for these laws to exist, even though there weren't necessarily historic analogs back in time. But either way, this particular law has some trouble. Uh, the judge wrote, how strictly or flexibly, if flexibly a court reads Bruin impacts his conclusion. Bruin's mandate is that a gun regulation's constitutionality hinge solely on the historical inquiry. According to Bruin, this can be the court's only consideration. Uh, that said, however, the court embraces Bruin's charge to sift through the history. And after sifting through the history above, the court finds that the government did not prove that Section 922G8 aligns with this nation's historical tradition of farm regulation and declines the government's invitation to insert its own public policy concerns rather than following Bruin. As a result, the court holds that 922G8 is unconstitutional under Bruin's framework. So, yeah, it, it is true that under Bruin, again, a strict view of Bruin would look at any particular gun control law and say, all right, is there uh, an historic analog here to be found? Um, no, there's not. Therefore, the law can't stand, right? But Bruin did say that, again, it, it left open a little bit of wiggle room, right? It didn't have to be a strict analog. It didn't have to be a mirror image to some uh, 18th or 19th century statute. And so the court in this case actually looked and said, all right, well, even if we're looking at this through a modern lens, yeah, there are still some issues here. Uh, and it really stretches beyond the uh, credulity of the court that a law like this could be in place and not uh, impact individual Second Amendment rights. In fact, the judge pointed out there were problems with this statute beyond the Bruin decision. Um, the judge at one point brought up the uh, restraining order that had been issued against David Letterman back in, I think it was 2006, uh, 2005. The judge said a disturbed woman whom Letterman had never met obtained a protective order against him from a state court because Letterman's presence on television harassed her. And when asked why it had issued the restraining order, the state court said it was because the woman had filled out the restraining order form accurately. Uh, more importantly, the judge wrote, Letterman was never notified of the order against him. So although the order was eventually dismissed, if Letterman had possessed a firearm when the court had entered the order without his knowledge, was he now a felon? under this particular statute that was challenged and eventually rejected by the court. Um, presumably, the answer is yes, 
right? So the judge pointed out that there were there were issues beyond just the uh, the Bruin test that cast doubt on the Constitution out of this law. Again, not that the uh, New York Times is interested in wading into the intricacies of any of these cases or the reasoning behind the uh, the rulings in these cases. As far as the New York Times is concerned, if gun control laws are upheld, that's good. If gun control laws are struck down, that's bad. And it's as simple as that. Uh, the truth, I think, is actually the, uh, generally speaking, the other way around. But it's also a little bit more complicated than that. The court has said that, yeah, some gun laws are going to be constitutional. Shall issue concealed carry regimes, for example. Presumptively constitutional, although the court said they can even shall issue means can be put to abusive ends. And as such, could be challenged if there's evidence to that effect. Um, but again, the bottom line for the gun control movement is, is exactly what Adam Winkler, a UCLA law professor had to say. Um, he said that, uh, the fact of the matter is a large number of our gun laws are 20th century inventions. And as such, there's not going to be a lot of historic analogs to be found. Uh, and as such, a lot of these gun control measures that have been put in place, yeah, are likely going to be unconstitutional. Uh, that doesn't mean, again, that it takes every public policy prescription off the table in terms of fighting violent crime, in terms of addressing domestic violence, in terms of addressing suicide. But it does mean that you can't base those policies on the idea that, uh, well, the answer is to just make the Second Amendment disappear or to confine it to as small a space as possible so that as few Americans as possible have access to that right. All right, let's turn our attention now to today's Armed Citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report. We're going to start there. Now, this is not a true recidivist report, but I bring this up because we've seen a number of bills introduced around the country calling for storage mandates, right? If you're a gun owner, it doesn't matter if you have kids in your house, uh, you must store your firearm locked up uh, in some uh, bills, ammunition stored separately, even though the Supreme Court has said, ah, that's already a no-no in Heller. But again, the idea is make these firearms as difficult uh, to access as possible, presumably with an eye towards preventing accidents. Yeah, but you know what? If it uh, stops somebody from being able to protect themselves, ah, I, mean, I guess that's just, you know, the price you pay, right? So what actually happens? When somebody is convicted or, or charged, I should say, with um, not storing their firearms separately or not storing their firearms uh, as defined under state law. In North Carolina, there was a case not long ago where a four-year-old was shot and killed by a five-year-old who got access to a handgun that was laying out on a coffee table. Parents had gone to work. Apparently, the gun belonged to the uncle. None of the adults in the house took even the minimal steps to secure that firearm. Again, out there on a coffee table. And they, uh, the gun was picked up by the five-year-old. Four-year-old was shot and killed. The parents and the uncle were both charged, um, basically with uh, allowing uh, this five-year-old to have access. Uh, the original charge is felony involuntary manslaughter. 
felony child abuse, and then a misdemeanor charge of storing a firearm in a manner accessible to a minor. So that's something to think about as well. A, a misdemeanor offense that is typically applied after the fact, after something has happened. It's not much of a preventative measure, is it? If that's, supposed, if that's the supposed reason for these bills, I would say these bills don't actually do much. But then we also have to think about what actually happens when somebody is charged. Um, because the individuals in this case, uh, Savannah Lee Brame, Hector Manuel Mendoza Sacedo, and Keith Desson Sturgill, all charged with felonies, multiple felonies, felony involuntary manslaughter, felony child abuse, as well as that misdemeanor charge of storing a firearm in a manner accessible to a minor. All of them were able to take plea deals. And all of them got probation. That's right. Probation. The uh, parents, in this case, according to prosecutors, are going to get 36 months probation. The gun owner is getting 24 months of probation. During a court hearing, prosecutors said the adults knew that a loaded gun was on the home's coffee table with the safety off. Uh, but uh, Mendoza and Sturgill left for work. That's when the five-year-old child and the four-year-old found the weapon. Five-year-old sibling shot the four-year-old. Sturgill uh, was the uh, child's uncle. Apparently, all three lived there at the uh, home together. And again, this is a terrible tragedy. And I would say that the law in the books in North Carolina, making it a misdemeanor offense to store a firearm in a manner accessible to a minor, is absolutely worthless at stopping tragedies like this from taking place. You know, I don't know that the answer, frankly, is a law. I, I think we need uh, educational resources. We need to, particularly in uh, Democrat-run uh, cities and states, we need to stop this mentality that guns are taboo uh, and this sort of, you know, abstinence-based policy of don't ever touch a gun, right? It's amazing to me that in places like California, it is easier to find a place for, let's say, opioid addicts to shoot up than it is for a gun owner to go shooting at a range where they can get education and training. That mentality, I think, makes things worse. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, again, what we see here is that even when a child dies and these laws are in place, the result is, generally speaking, a plea bargain, felonies wiped clean, and basically it's the misdemeanor charge that sticks and results, again, in a sentence of probation. A slap on the wrist, stay out of trouble, and we'll see you in a couple of years. Today's Armed citizen story, Garden City, Kansas where a uh, homicide has been deemed to be self-defense. Um, this happened uh, early Monday morning, just before 5.30 a.m. According to authorities, uh, 27-year-old Braxton Lloyd had been out all night and was picked up by a family member. Uh, according to police, an altercation later ensued between Lloyd and that family member and then another family member inside the home. Garden City Police Department says Lloyd allegedly pulled out a gun and threatened family members. That's when one of the family members pulled a gun of their own and shot Lloyd. He was taken to a hospital in Wichita, Kansas, where he later died. Uh, evidence gathered by the uh, Garden City Police Department, as well as the uh, Finney County Attorney's Office, 
the police department says at this time, both the Garden City PD and the Finney County attorney agree that the evidence available provides probable cause that the suspect in this manner acted in self-defense. Now, they say if evidence comes to light, indicating that this homicide was not justified, that uh, they'll reevaluate the case. But again, at this point, it appears to be uh, and, and, and not, a, not a cause for celebration, but it appears to be a, a justified homicide there in uh, Garden City, Kansas. Finally today, our uh, good deed of the day from uh, rural Ohio, where uh, fire crews saved a 76-year-old man who was stuck in a uh, grain bin. This was uh, Clinton County, Iowa. Happened about 1130 on Monday in the area of Sabrina, Ohio. Uh, Several fire departments called out. They first tried to get the guy uh, going in you know, to the grain itself, the grain elevator itself, couldn't get to them going in from the top. So instead, uh, they had to cut the side of the uh, grain elevator. Thankfully, uh, the 76-year-old was rescued, uh, taken to a local hospital for uh, for treatment, but it looks like he's going to recover. Um, according to the Shoto Post, I didn't realize this, grain entrapments and fatalities have been on the rise Across the country in 2017, there were 23 grain entrapments, 12 deaths. 2019, 23 deaths uh, in 38 grain entrapments. Total grain entrapments rose by 65% over that uh, three-year period, according to the uh, Shioto Post. So, again, you know, not necessarily a commonplace event, but something that is happening uh, more and more frequently and truly grateful that these uh, fire and rescue crews were in the right place at the right time, able to respond and uh, get this guy out of the uh, grain elevator there in uh, rural Ohio. We thank them all for their very good deed. All right, that is going to do it for this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. I do want to thank you for being a part of the program as well, and I'm looking forward to being back with you tomorrow where, uh, yes, we may be talking more about Biden's executive orders uh, if there is anything of substance worth talking about, again, I, I, I still think this is just a, a chance to speechify about the supposed need to ban guns and the uh, unwillingness of Congress to do so. But we'll see. And uh, we'll bring you more details on tomorrow's uh, Cam and Company. Um, if not on that particular story, well, there's always something else going on, including the uh, fight for permitless carry in Florida and beyond. We still are looking at uh, permitless carry uh, in Nebraska and South Carolina potentially as well. But uh, we'll be talking about. Whatever the big Second Amendment, news, uh, Second Amendment news story of the day is on tomorrow's Cam and Company. I'm looking forward to you being there as well. Thank you for joining me today. Be sure to check out BarryandArms.com throughout the rest of your uh, your workday. We're keeping you caught up on all of the latest Second Amendment news and information. And if you like what you see, I would always encourage you to become a VIP member as well. Just go to BarryandArms.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code GUNRIGHTS, and you can get a significant savings on your VIP membership. As always, saying thanks for showing your support. We're going to give you exclusive content. News stories and analysis you won't find anywhere else because your support does matter and it really does make a difference. So thank you again. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Until then, be well, be safe, and be free. <laughs>